everyone, and welcome back to the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. I am very excited for today's episode. Uh, we have John Craigie, but before I get into that, I'll just say a few things, which is um, thank you so much for the support and feedback I've received up until now on the podcast. Um, so please keep it coming. Uh, Feel free to interact with me on all the uh, appropriate social networks, and you can find a list of uh, appropriately approved social networks in the manual that you should have downloaded upon downloading the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less, from iTunes or Stitcher. Just kidding. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Gmail, that sort of thing. Um, feel free to, to send me any comments you have or guests you'd like to see me or have or other, other, other ideas for episodes that maybe don't include guests or non-musician guests. And, uh, of course, feel free to leave a five-star rating, um, at any place. Um, anyway, back to, uh, my guest for today. Um, I was really excited to have John Craigie on here. John, is he's one of my favorite folk singers, um, or song singer songwriters in general, I would say. Uh, and he is he is you know, and, and I, it'll say it right right on Wikipedia that he's hailed as a modern day troubadour in the style of Woody Guthrie and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And I would say John does a great job um, holding that torch. Although he's he's uh, he's a unique guy, and and the music is updated and. One thing I love about John is, uh, in addition to his wonderful songwriting, um, he is really uh, a funny guy and tells some great, great stories, um, kind of, I don't want to say combining stand-up comedy and music, because I don't think that's exactly what it is, but more um, just very entertaining and humorous storytelling. But also his songs are not, uh, some of them are funny, but a lot of them are uh, deal with all sorts of issues that will make you laugh or make you think or uh, feel um, something close to uh, melancholy or hope or any of the range of human emotions available to us. I first saw John, I don't think I ever mentioned this uh, to him, um, at Burning Man in 2009, the, the one and only year that I attended Burning Man. Um, and he plays every year at center camp and I didn't, and I just kind of wandered up there. Uh, if anyone has been to burning man, you can kind of get a, an idea of, uh, what it was like. It was in the middle of the day and there was just this guy with this really cool painted guitar playing. And I was, you know, wandering from place to place and I didn't even stay for that long. I think, you know, stayed and listened to a few songs and, uh, but there's so much distraction and everything. But I just remember seeing this guy and having this really nice, positive feeling. Uh, and just kind of, I don't even remember what he's saying about, but just relating to the, uh, that that feeling resonating with me and, and taking some comfort that there was this unidentified singer there that um, was providing me some solace in that moment when the Burning Man experience could be very overwhelming. And then, uh, I don't know, a couple years later, I'll say I had a good friend 
take me to one of his concerts at this underground venue called Veracocha in the Mission in San Francisco and said, you got to see John Craigie, you got to see John Craigie. Um, and then uh, seeing the show right there, I was I was just sold immediately. Uh, it didn't take much, right? First song in, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with this guy. Uh, and just a, just a great show there. We developed somewhat of a friendship over the years as we'd uh, see each other from time to time at, at uh, gigs and festivals and whatnot. And I ended up doing some, uh, recording some percussion for his uh, album, second to last album, uh, or third to last, uh, The Apocalypse is Over. And to tie it all in, uh, at some point, I think at that concert at the Lost Church, I recognized his guitar and was like, hey, that's that guitar from that dude at Burning Man a couple years ago. And sure enough, it was John Craigie. So, um, yeah, the gifts keep giving, so to speak. Craigie is also a notorious road warrior. And I, I'll say, I'll emphasize warrior. He is, he basically lives on the road and has been for many years now um, playing all over the country and uh, in other countries. Um, he, he is based in Portland, although he's rarely there, and we talk a little about that in the interview. And this summer, he's got some um, exciting stuff happen because he will be doing a run opening up for Jack Johnson, uh, and we didn't touch on that in the interview, but I wanted to mention it and uh, wish John a congrats about that. Uh, he'll be at the Greek Theater in California with Jack, as well as some other bigger venues around the country. Um, so look out for those as well as other dates, and you can find John online at all the appropriately listed uh, websites that I've listed uh, in the user's manual. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome John Craigie, and uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to, I could, I could go on and tell you about what we talked about, but I'll just say it's a great conversation. You should listen to it. We go into all sorts of things and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see you on the other side of it. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy. All right. So how's your day, man? Uh, it's going, it's going well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how is, how's the tour going? Good. Just, uh, the East Coast tour just started last night in this small town called Stroudsburg. Nice. And, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, you know it. All right. I've, I've heard of it. I don't know, I don't know why I know it, but. Yeah, small town, little, little college town. And then I'm going to state college, big college town tonight. Warming up with some small towns and then hitting Philly on Friday. Then it starts start doing some of the bigger cities after that. Like what? Uh, I'll go Philly, Portland, Maine, Boston, uh, Syracuse, Toronto. Then there's a place called Saratoga Springs, which is small, but it's kind of a legendary folk club called Cafe Lena. Okay. Yep, um, I've been to Saratoga. That's where Skidmore yeah. is. Yeah, 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 totally. And then, um, then finish it off in New York City. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is probably my like. I'm I'm the least like uh, big over in this region, 
Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's always fun to like do the, do the West coast and feel really good about myself and then come East and get a little bit more humbled. But <laughs> it, it, is it, is it, are you humbled because th- there's less people at the shows or just cause you think the performances aren't quite as received quite as well? Uh, both and all. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm humbled in every way possible. The universe does everything I can to keep me that way, which I tell the universe they don't have to try so hard. I'm, I'm pretty humble, but yeah. Um, no, but yeah, no, it's more just, um, yeah, smaller rooms and, uh, you know, this, the performance is, 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 is what it is. Um, but it's not quite as when you're doing what I'm doing, I mean, with, with what everyone's doing, but with me, with the humor and things like that, once your crowd kind of gets to know you better, uh, you just, they, they're just more on your level. And so there's certain, bits or certain like avenues you can go down that um that they're more willing to go down now obviously i'm pretty like tame as far as like anything controversial right but like a perfect example would be like like louis ck for example you know what i mean yep i love louis ck Louis C. K., yeah me too uh, i'm a huge comedy nerd uh so i know i know all the things of all the people so louis ck is a white guy um he is a white man mm-hmm. and he will, he says things that now obviously his like in- intention is clear, but he will say things um, that if somebody else said it, you know, the, the world, you know, not necessarily that person would be like driven out of the business, but people would be like, nope, not funny, not into it. But Louis CK has over time developed his sort of like reputation. And so when he says stuff, it's just like, Oh, there goes old Louis. Um, <laughs> Whereas, you know, maybe if like Jerry Seinfeld or something like said that, everyone would be like, ew, gross, no, no way. And that's fine. I and mean, that's one of the parts of, of um, you know, of like entertainment. Now, on a much, much smaller, uh, you know, Craigie's not doing like anything racial on stage. But on a much smaller level, just a simple um, just bit maybe about, you know, me trying to talk to girls and like, uh, which the normal crowd is like, oh, yeah, that's what's that's a John thing. He's awkward and shy. We're on board. If it's a new audience they not that they would be offended but they just might be like okay all right i see where this is going so the benefit of playing in the town many times and having the majority of the audience know who you are kind of loosens everybody up because do you uh do you, because they know your not only your personality but but your intentions is, yeah i think you... so and it's also just um it's also just uh the, the act of like speaking on stage in between songs at, in general at the beginning in, in the long run is, is beneficial. But in the beginning of a crowd not knowing you, it does put people, um, it makes people a little uncomfortable because it's not normal. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So not. when people come to a, go to a music show, they're expecting um, to sit and sort of dwell and, you know, be entertained by music. And this is something that I struggled with a lot in the beginning of my is it okay that or are we just going into it? We're we're rolling. This okay, is, cool. Yeah. Sorry, I was like, yeah. I don't mean to go straight into. No, it's great. To, Who needs? Okay. Yeah, let's just get right in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like you and I would talk about this anyway, but. Yep. Um, yeah. In the beginning of my career, when like nobody knew what I was doing, I would notice that the audiences were, were yeah would start to get a little uncomfortable. And again, not, I wasn't talking about like intense politics or intense like you know, um, social issues. I was just talking about like, Hey, I was talking to this girl. She didn't like me, but people, it just made people feel weird 
because they're like, wait, we're supposed to be just like listening to your music. You're supposed to like, you're supposed to be James Taylor up there. Right. Uh, so what's going on? But then once, once people are like, oh, this is Craig, this is what he does, right from the get-go, people are on board. And so like, for example, like last night, I'd never been there. And it was a classic situation of like the promoter was a big fan. So he, he sort of builds this show around me. And the crowd, it took, it took about five songs before they were like, oh, he wants us to laugh. You know, like <laughs> doing, I have like a whole, you know, a whole song about like the, Wood, the Woodstock baby. It's like the baby that was born at Woodstock. It's like a ridiculous, you know, there's no, nothing serious about it. It's all about that baby kind of bragging how cool its parents are. And, you know, the audience was just sort of like very politely like listening and smiling and just not, not like laughing at the punchlines. Right. And I thought, I thought, geez, maybe these guys, maybe this is too edgy <laughs> for Strasburg, you know? Um, and then, you know, then I get to like pictures on my phone, like deeper into the set, which is a song about, um, you know, like, uh, dating and trying to like flirt through texting and taking pictures of yourself. And which is, which is definitely like racier than Woodstock baby. Mm-hmm. Um, people were like, right. People were on board at that point. So, it just took him a while to be like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And so that's what I mean as far as like humbling. I don't have that sort of, you know, sort of confidence. Like when I walk out on stage in San Francisco, from the get-go, it's like first line, boom, you know, if that's what I want. You know, they're right there with me, which is something you got to earn. Sure. And and you could probably take, uh, you, you could probably, I don't want to say, I don't know if it's like take more chances, but you could, you know, there's, you don't have to, um, you can delve right into it, like then. Yeah. Uh, for instance, like I, I don't know if you saw Louis C.K.'s last uh, comedy special, twenty seventeen, um, but he just uh, he the you know he 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 literally starts the show like with saying so abortion, blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, which is just like okay, you know, unless. If anyone else did that, especially someone coming up who already didn't have such a rapport yes. with an audience, it would be like received like, what? what is this guy doing? We just got here. We don't even know who you are. You're yeah. talking about abortion. What's going on? You know, but, you know, he just he just like says those two words like so about abortion. And, you know, the whole place erupts because they're just like, yes, this is why we came because we want you to go to this place. And and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Louis at the point now where if he doesn't go there, people will be upset. Sure, sure. And yeah. I, and, and again, not to compare myself to Louis at all, but like just in as far as a performer comparison, when I first started, I would be doing gigs where people would yell out like more, like more music, less talk. You know, people would say that to me. I would heckle in that in that fashion. Yeah. And now, if I were to do a show without the stories, you know, people would be pretty upset. Which is, which you know, I had to earn that over time, which is what I wanted. Yeah, but it is, and I'm and I'm sure, and I actually seen some like old Louis, and it was definitely more standard. Oh yeah, it's, you know, observational comedy. And you, you earn it over time. Sure. So was that always your intention to integrate the storytelling with the songs, or did that kind of just evolve over time? Yeah, you... not definitely, definitely not my initial intention. You know, I mean, the the road for me was so slow because I was not like blessed with like the talents of art at all you know not to not to like you know you do self-deprecating but in just all honesty you know the craigies were not an artistic family and my I, my parents would not mind me saying that sure uh, yeah and i wasn't raised with music at all okay um and so 
music to me when I was a kid was sort of this like, you know, magician. It was, you know, similar to like a magician. It was something that like you had these powers that you would do. If you didn't have them, you know, you weren't doing it. You know what I mean? Uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Um, in the sense that like, you know, if I wanted to be like a, um, a carpenter, I'd be like, yeah, I'll go to carpentry school. I can learn how to like build that shelf. Okay. But when I was, I was also growing up in the nineties when like music was a very like huge thing, you know, Pearl Jam was like my favorite band mm -hmm. and that's not something you're going to sit on the edge of your bed and like create, you know what I mean? So, okay. So you were used, did it seem, you, did it seem like more unattainable than, than. Def oh, def definitely. You know, I mean, at that time, even though people like Bob Dylan existed that in the, in the mid nineties, that was very like not cool. You know, Dylan was kind of in a not cool period. So as a teenager coming up, if your parents were introducing you to that stuff, it didn't exist. You know what right. I mean? Right. Um, I, you know, I thought Jimi Hendrix wrote all along the watchtower. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of some other good examples. I didn't, I, I didn't know about James Taylor. I didn't know about um, Leonard, Leonard Cohen. All these people were very uncool. Not, you know, after if, in the post, post like Kurt Cobain era, music was was about rock, you know, rocking out, rock and roll. And those those were sort of the deep songwriters of my time. And so, uh, yeah, music was very unattainable. And it wasn't until I was about 15 that a friend of mine who was who was very smart and very talented, he started playing guitar, and he brought that. Uh, he like showed me that it wasn't that that hard and that sort of was the key that I could maybe play music mm, okay and but so so fast forward I won't not to give too much backstory but by then I was able to play music able to write songs but also the 90s was a very like ser serious time for music mm -hmm. in that the shows I would go to Pearl Jam um, I'm trying to think like uh, who else was I Third Eye Blind Live I'm trying to think of some shows I saw as a kid Stone Tall Pilots R.E.M. Those guys weren't like, weren't talking on stage. And if Eddie Vedder did talk, it was like a political rant. Okay. And that was, you know, that was that. Yeah. And so to me, now I was a class clown and I was known for my storytelling as a kid, you know, in my, in my group of friends and in my social circle. Um, I was known as like the guy who would, if a, if a story happened, like if something happened to the crew and we'd get back to the other part of the crew and they would say what happened, they would always be like, Craig, you tell it, you know. Um, yeah. That was a talent, but it wasn't. So then I start playing music. I start, you know, getting decent. I'm doing shows in coffee houses. At this point, I'm in Santa Cruz. Um, I didn't even I didn't even consider that that would be an option until I uh, uh, was huge. Thanks to KPIG, uh, which is a radio station in, in Santa Cruz, mm -hmm. which was turn, turning me on to like music that I wouldn't have heard otherwise. This is all free, not free Internet, but, you know, free like uh, Spotify. Free yeah, Pandora. music wasn't ubiquitous in the same way totally and so i went k-pig also threw great concerts i went to see arlo guthrie at the rio theater in santa cruz hmm. um because i liked folk, you know folk music and you know arlo was just up there telling stories and i was like i didn't know you could do this yeah and i then saw greg brown i saw todd snyder i saw um uh you know a bunch of people in that in that vein and and so then i thought wow so it still took me a while to integrate it because I was pretty nervous on stage and pretty shy. And, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to just sit there, close your eyes and sing your songs. Not, it's not that easy, but you know, you can get used to that. Sure. Opening up and starting to go into sort of a 
these monologues. Um, yeah, it was tricky. What really kicked it is when I started touring and I was just by myself so much and things started happening to me on the road. You know, I just had to share it with somebody and the audience was there for me each night. And that's kind of where it started to come up. Yeah. What was, what was the first story that you remember telling that really you felt resonated with an audience? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, probably like one of my earliest, uh, what I would, what I was doing in the beginning is, um, integrating like, like when I was a kid, I was a big Seinfeld guy, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, that was sort of Seinfeld and Simpsons were sort of like the basis of my sense of humor, you I'm, know, as, a, as like a midnight. I'm right there with you. That was, yeah, as a mid. Yeah. And so, um, that was, yeah, that was a big, that was a big thing for me. Um, so I would do at lunch, like, I think I also maybe dreamed of being a stand up comic at some point, probably during that Seinfeld era. So I would do bits at, you know, um, at, at my, like to my friends and some of them like were funny somewhere, but a lot of, one of the earlier bits I would do was sort of a bit about, um, cause I went to Catholic school. And so there was a lot of, a lot of jokes you could make kind of like dealing with these sort of ridiculous Bible stories, not to offend anybody, but you know, sure. um, so I had this whole bit I did, which was, which was fun and very non-offensive. It was about Jesus turning water into wine and how, you know, in the Bible, he only does that one time and how I like had a hard time believing that. And I would always ask the teacher and she would say just the once. And I would do this whole thing about how that had to become like his free bird, like everywhere he went, people would <laughs> shout it out. And I do like a whole bit about that. And that was one of the first like bits that, that was successful. As far as stories, that's a good question. I'm trying to think um, of one of the early ones. There was a, um, there was a story that was, it was pretty dumb, but one of my first times in, in uh, Louisiana, I did this, um, I did the show in Shreveport and went to an after party and the woman, uh, they all had their, their great accents there. One of the women said, yeah, she said, give me a drink and put a little ice into it. That's how they said ice, you mm -hmm. know, insert. And so that, you know, that was, just, that was sort of a story that I told on stage that got a good laugh, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I'd have to look back, back through my archives of stories, but yeah, it was normally just stuff like that. There was things that would happen sometimes on the road that were not funny. Like they were more bittersweet or sad that I would, in the beginning I would tell. And then, that would just bring the audience down. So um, I knew that I would either have to find a way to spin it to make it sort of, um, you know, funny and while still being sad, which I could do for some stories, other stories I just had to keep to myself. Or what then I would do is sort of, I could turn that story into a song and then it would work out, um, you know, a little bit better. And so that was that, and that was really what was so liberating when I finally kind of reached it is that I could really satisfy both of my, you know, outlets, which was, you know, I really liked the humor, but I also liked, you know, as any songwriter, I had, I was sensitive and had my emotions and I wanted to be able to do that. And I knew once the funny started getting kind of successful, I was very cautious because I grew up also with Adam Sandler and Flight of the Concords. And, and I remember being a little kid and thinking, you know, what if those guys wrote like a serious song, like what, there's nothing they can do. You know, I'm there's, sure. I, there's nothing they I really can do? What do you mean? Um, well, you know, like I remember as a kid, I would watch Saturday Night Live and watch Adam Sandler and I really liked his style. Like I, yeah, I thought he had a good voice. I thought he was really good with melody. I was like, there's, he's got to write other songs. Oh, I see what you're saying. Songs. Okay. Yeah. And sorry, not nothing they could do, but like he can't at his concert, Adam Sandler can't just be like, and here's a love song for my girlfriend. Like, right. Yeah. People were just going to be like, you know? Yeah. So I, I was like, okay, I can't become that. 
which is which is not at the time I was a little more nervous. It's not as hard as you know. You really have to like market yourself as the sort of clown. Yeah. But um, but I respect all those guys. We're like Yank- we're like Yankovic would be another example. Um, sure. I listened to an interview with him. Uh, I think it was the Mark Maron one where he did talk about you know writing those kind of songs and how it's just uh, not what the people want. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a fine line. Well, you you certainly. Uh, straddle it well and another thing that I notice that and that I really uh, uh, am drawn to in your music is uh, I feel like there's there's this uh, there's like a profundity um, in in some of your work like some even some of the more sad stuff that still has this like hopeful glimmer you you have it's just this very like hopeful, um, profound feeling that I feel like it is it, your a lot of your material is is wrapped in at least in how I interpret it and and I really, I, that really resonates with me. Um, well, yeah, thanks for saying that. You know, I mean that I've been talking about this a lot on this tour, which just like my most recent album, is, you know, I remember when I first started doing music. I don't know where I heard this or where I would have read this, but. You know, I think sometimes people get the misconception that music is supposed to make you feel better. And really, the purpose of music is not to make you feel better, but to make you feel like you're not alone. That's mm. that's like really good music, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And and that was something that I really wanted to do because when I started, I mean, I always was sort of like a solo guy. You know, I grew up in a house of nice parents, two sisters. So it was sort of like um, I was sort of the odd man out just be sort of the, the, they were all great and nice, but they sort of, my sisters had their crew. They, they were tied together as sisters and my parents were parents. And then also just, I had friends growing up, but I always just had that sort of solo thing. And music always like did that for me as a little kid. You know, you'd hear somebody in a song, you'd be like, oh yeah, I felt that too. And humor also did that, like stand-up comedy. Even a dumb thing like Jerry Seinfeld, a dumb like observational thing about peanuts, you'd be like, I felt that too. Yeah. And so that was something that I really like when I was able to do music, I really wanted to give back. And that's all. That's like definitely like a huge part of anytime I'm writing the song is like, can they, can, is this relatable? Is this something? I think sometimes a musician makes that mistake of being maybe, I wouldn't say too personal, but just uh, too closed off to the fact that, um, that people want to come. They want to know, like they want to come in, they want that honesty and they want it to feel like it's relatable. Uh, And, and in turn, you know the 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 ironic thing about that is that I I feel like that has the effect make, making people feel like they're not alone, reckon, having them recognize that has the added effect of making them feel better. Not necessarily that, exactly, you know, but it's not like feel better because every, the world is you know lollipops and rainbows and there's nothing to be sad about or you know upset about. It's but it's like no, feel better because at least I'm here with you experiencing similar things and. You know whether that's, you know, yeah, we're 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 having a shared empathetic experience with each other, and and you know, in turn, that'll lift people up, which is a beautiful thing about music. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing of like, why would you listen to sad music if you're sad? You know, right? Um, like you know, it's because you want to feel that that uh, kinship, sense of connection. Yeah, um, yeah, a very like cheesy example would be like an R- the REM song. Everybody hurts, you know, like sure. That's that's like the most basic, obvious black black and white like 
example of that. You know, it's a sad song. Um, he's, he says, everybody hurts. You're hurting. You're like, cool, everybody hurts. Then he says, hold on. And you're like, okay. Yeah. So that yeah. song, again, not to knock R.E.M., you know, I love R.E.M., but um, that would be like the most like 101 music songwriting, <laughs> you know, you know, maybe there's a few more subtle ways to say it, but I love, yeah, love yeah. that song. Love and, that album. and it's the same reason there's so many heartbreak songs, you know, because yeah. why would somebody want to hear a song about heartbreak? You know, that's just going to bum them out. Well, except unless you're one of the all the people in the world that have had their heart broken. <laughs> and, exactly. uh, you know, that's going to take some solace in that. Totally. So the challenge nowadays, I think, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty like, I talk to a lot of young songwriters, you know, I have that sort of like, it's very flattering and honor of, of a lot of young songwriters reaching out to me and for advice or whatever. And the, the trick now is, you know, first you want to be honest, obviously be, be truthful. Nobody wants to like, we've heard enough fake songs or songs about coal mining or whatever, like to let us be honest with us. But right. then the second challenge is, you know, trying to say, trying to sort of say something new, um, you know, as far as like with your lyrics and your rhyme scheme and everything like that, there's so much music now that sometimes I'll get turned off by an artist because I'm just like, okay, I heard that, I've heard that. So mm. that's another challenge, I think, when you're sitting down to write a song is, okay, I'm here, I'm trying to be relatable, I want to say the thing that everyone can relate to, but I don't want to say the thing that everyone has already said. Um, how can I spin this in a new light or you know, make a, a, a new metaphor or something that will kind of hit someone in a fresh way? How much, how much do you work on, on that stuff as far as lyric writing and as far as like tweaking lines or, or trying, you know, different lines uh, in different places or, or ch changing words and rhyme schemes as opposed to just like, oh, here's my song and it's all going to come out in one sitting. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, very much. I, I, I try to work really hard because, it, you know, I think in the beginning of a songwriter's life, the songwriter is just really happy to have songs. You know, you really just want, you're trying to like, I, you know, I, could, I compare it to like a cowboy or a gunslinger or something like that where, you know, you're starting to go out there, you just, you just need some bullets in your gun. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um, you need a gun and some bullets. Mm -hmm. As you as you travel more, you get out there more and you, you know, you'd have more like, you know, duels. You want, you're like, okay, well, now I want like a really good gun with really good bullets. I don't need like just cheap ass bullets anymore. Mm -hmm. And I want my so, gun to look different and, and be yes. noticeable in my holster. Exactly. Yeah. And so in the early days, um, for me, at least, some, some musicians just, again, have that raw gift and that raw talent where their first album is, like, amazing and they're just great from the start. But I think a lot of us, in the beginning, it's just like, yeah, we, we let almost everything in through the gates because we just we just want to go out there and play. We want to have some songs. And then later, you're, you're a little less desperate. And so um, those I think it's better to kind of close those gates a little bit more and make the, the sort of hiring process a little bit more intense. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty harsh on myself for that. And I will sometimes, I, I li I'll change a line, you know, two years later after it's been on the album, if I if I feel that that line is stale or if it's just, um, or maybe I made a mistake. I, I've definitely hmm. done that before where like I thought I was, oh, this is a great line. And then I get out there more and then be like, oh, everyone just said this, you know, um, you can't hear everything. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, so I think people are coming to the shows. I am not for like the the golden voice of John Craigie and not for the, you know, amazing guitar playing. Um, and so I, it's important to me now that, you know, I think you gotta, you gotta like, uh, you earn your audience and then you gotta keep earning them. And 
I, I don't want to neglect if that's what they came for. I want to give it to them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, some songs get scrapped just because. And also, too, I try I try to test it out. You know, I'll give sometimes I'll give a song a few run, runs, and I love being at the merch table getting feedback from people. Mm-hmm. You, you can always tell. I, you know, yeah. Just, yeah. Reaction wise. Uh, you, you know, that's interesting what you said about um, pe- artists that put out their first albums and they're, they're really great. And, and I, I kind of made a note of that as you were talking because I'm wondering um, if, if, you, if we see as much of that today. And the reason why I'm, and I'm just thinking out loud, but the reason why I'm, I ask is because... Um, <clears throat> I think it was like my uncle once commented about, uh, you know, how how a lot of artists' records, their first records will often be like these great records, sometimes sometimes even like amongst the best of their work. And, yeah. you know, today, that thing, I, I feel like it's, it, that's not very intuitive, you know, when we, when we think True. about that today. But it, when you have to think, you know, back a few decades... Um, which is, which is, I think the music my uncle was referring to, um, it was like by the time Elton John, uh, or, or James Taylor or whoever, you know, gets to make a record, you know, actually gets a record deal and is signed with a company. Uh, I just, I, I just threw those examples out as yeah. arbitrary. I don't know exactly how their stories correlated with this idea, but, but the point is like, you know, they've probably already had like a good 10 years of, of performing and writing and, uh, and experience like, so and and the songs they cho- choose to put on that record are probably like the best songs they've ever written and not just over a longer period and not just a f- the first songs. Whereas like today it's like, okay, you're coming up. The first thing you need to do, put out your own record, you know, and no, nobody's yes. like, nobody's like, Oh, Oh, you want to be a songwriter? Great. Okay. Wait 15 years in 10 years, play, play at bars, all, you know, do all this stuff and then wait to get signed by Columbia and then put out your best work. No, it's like, just put out something, you know? So, so I guess I, I thought of that and I wondered if, if, if there are as many examples of that today as there were in the past. And if perhaps that's with the, uh, with the indie music world we live in, um, maybe, maybe there aren't as many great first albums as there were, you know, 30 years ago. I I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a huge. What you just said is a huge part of it. Um, I think I think it's it's a couple things. Uh, another thing is that twenty two in twenty seventeen is way different than twenty two in like nineteen sixty three, um, in the sense that uh, I feel like just at, because we live longer, maybe, and because society has changed, cult, American culture has changed. I just feel like a twenty two year old is way younger and way more of a child mm. um, now than they were back then. Interesting. Um, and way less is expected of you. So, you know, by the time Bob Dylan was in, in 22, he had, uh, you know, ran away, you know, left home, you know, traveled to New York, lived that sort of uh, bohemian lifestyle. And most people have left their and nowadays have like went from their parents' house to college and lived like the dorm lifestyle again, which is not bad. But, but um, it's a very different experience you know, they, than that. Yeah, they were yeah. like taking poli sci and, uh, you know, like watching South Park. And, uh, you know, eating dorm food, not fighting and, in Vietnam. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. there's that, but there's also like what you said too, is, um, you know, the Beatles for an obvious example, like, you know, are spending 
you know, hundreds and thousands of hours in, um, in Germany, you know, in the Cavern Club uh, yep. before they cut Please Please Me. And even Please Please Me is, uh, you know, I, I'm a huge Beatles nerd, so, you know, you can listen to Please Please Me and you can hear, like, pretty cheesy lines, like Love Me Do is a pretty cheesy song. Uh-huh. Um, but also you have, so most bands do not have all those hundreds of hours, in, you know, in a, you're right, they make an album before they even start doing anything. Yeah. But also they make that album probably, like, in their garage, which there's nothing wrong with that. But Please Please Me is made you know, in a, in a studio, George Martin's there. And so even love me do is going to sound pretty cool. Yeah. Um, because somebody is there to make sure it sounds pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, like my, for example, like my jam band in college, again, to compare us to the Beatles, which I think is a very fair comparison. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, we, we had done like probably like four house concerts and like house parties, you know? And then of course it's like, you get, gotta have a CD. So then we go into, um, you know, there was a guy who had like a studio in his trailer and, and we cut, cut the CD. And so, uh, it's, it's awful, but it's also like rightfully so it's awful. Like there was no reason it wouldn't be awful. We had been together for a few months. And so you're totally right on that. But I think also too, just the, ex- the experience of a, of a, of a younger man, um, nowadays is just different than the experience of a younger man then. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, it makes, it makes more sense that you'd be getting, um, you know, sort of better cuts from somebody who's lived a little bit longer. Um, and you would be getting like to better albums from someone who's made a few albums because you learn over time. It took me a while, even in my post jam band career, the, the album that I call my first album is not my first album. You know, it's, it's, uh, my, like my fifth album, but I just, I kind of call those other albums my early years because that's what they are. Right. Yeah. Need to makes, figure it out. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. By the, by the time you felt like you found your sound, you had already technically put out a, a good amount of material. Yeah. And so at the shows now, any new Craigie fan sees my 2009 album Montana tale as like my first album, which is great. That's how I want them to see. Right. It, you know? Right. Totally. Uh, um, and, and no disrespect to all the players on the albums prior to that, but, um, it was just, you know, I was, uh, still like sort of honing in. Yeah. Not just my sound, but also just my songwriting and the way to, I would make an album. Mm-hmm. That's something I, cause I listened to tons of sixties and seventies stuff and some of that stuff really, yeah. Like, like I was saying, like with a love, love me do being an example is like, Oh wow, this song is actually not that great, but man, the production is so cool on this that like, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know what I mean? Um, because it was done in Columbia Studios with like the best gear, the best players, yeah. the best producers there were. And Absolutely. so that that's also pretty interesting to me. Do you feel like your production style has changed a lot? Uh, or, or, or I guess you have, but how, how would you say uh, it's changed? Or what, 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 what would you have maybe done recording early on that you look back and you're like, ah, yeah, that's probably not the route I, I should have gone? Well, there. I think another mistake that young songwriters make that I made is that you, when it comes to like making an album, you want to like, you're just like get so excited about that, that you want to make your Sgt. Peppers right away. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, cool, I have the studio. Let's do every weird thing we can do. And I wouldn't say that I went that far, um, but I definitely felt the need to, um, 
to like you know make it a, like a great album and at that time what i thought was a great album was like a sergeant pepper's a dark side of the moon there had to be like a telephone somewhere in there there had to be a chicken you know clucking mm. somewhere um and and so i think that's why a lot of times and i've talked to like a lot of you know people who have studios who that's something that they have to deal with with a new band the new band wants to go crazy and make like this concept album and all this stuff and i think a lot of artists chill out after a while um it also just took me i just needed to be like more educated in, in, in recording and so yeah in the early albums i think i tried too hard and uh i always i also just couldn't afford to do what i wanted to do which is like what we did on the apocalypse is over which is really my favorite way to make a record which is just have the living room uh set up but have like someone really smart working the controls mm-hmm. and she's gonna get the best of both worlds yeah uh in the early days i was just in the guy's living room and not that he wasn't smart but we were just we were all amateurs you know you're figuring all it figuring it out yeah exactly yeah but i also again to protect those guys i also just wasn't that good in all in every shape <laughs> guitar singing vocals uh lyrics um and production choices it wasn't until montana tale that i I was able to be like, oh, okay, I get it now. And then I also had access to the right musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to, um, you know, a couple times you've mentioned younger songwriters and um, in, in the context of asking you questions uh, about your career and whatnot. How does that feel to, um, I mean, obviously you're still, I mean, I, I, I would say you're, you're definitely, you know, but not you know you're you're still very much in your career you're not (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah yeah, you're you're uh but but at the same time you've you know you have uh some years behind you now you've logged thousands of miles and and we should actually talk about some of the touring stuff in a little bit um because i wanted to ask you some stuff about that um but but you know but yeah as you said it it seems like you're at a more place where you have more credibility and notoriety as you know someone who does what you do in, in that niche of, of of troubadour folk singers you know that you're kind of like you know now somebody who's established and you know that younger younger songwriters can look up to and uh how, do, how does that feel and um to to kind of be kind of getting on that other side of that coin and and was there was there like a a, a moment in time when you were like oh yeah i actually i'm i'm here now or or was it just a very gradual unconscious process of all of a sudden looking back and or yeah or well yeah that's a great question and it's funny that you say that um i appreciate you tiptoeing around the fact that you wanted to say but you ain't shit craig <laughs> no the, no 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 that's not that's not what i meant i, I just meant like you still have a lot more career to go i know that that's yes you're not no, you're, no, but you're, you're right. not like a washed up you know done, you're not bob dylan who's who's basically done most of the important things he's going to do and you know now everything else yeah. is bonus you know you get it yeah, no, I'm just teasing you. No, um, but no, it's but the thing about that is it's it's been it's kind of almost always been that way, and in the, and I'll explain why. I think um, what it is is people, and I've been joking about this on stage lately, so it, it's meant to be a joke, but there is a lot of truth to it. Is that people go to a show like a young songwriter will go see like Wood Brothers, Andrew Bird, um, uh, maybe like you know Radiohead or whatever, and they would be like, man, I could never do that. These virtuosos. But it's always been they come to the Craigie show and they're like, eh, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, I, and that's a joke, but it's also very true. Like, um, 
you know, I, I don't have, it's not like I'm up there doing anything virtuos virtuosic. And so even in the early days when I was just like, you know, maybe filling up like a, a house concert or whatever, you'd have that one kid who was like, man, I want to do this. And I, I feel like I could do this. And it's true that they could. And so that's really what it is more than anything is no one's coming to me and being like, man, teach me like your, your, like your uh, guitar style or that kind of thing. And it's not even that people are like, man, teach me how to write songs. They more just want to know, like, how how do you make this work? How do you make like driving around and playing in venues a career? Because I, I write songs and I'd like to do that. And so um, it's, it has been that way for a long time. It's just more so now just because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just gotten more exposure. Um, but I think when you're in that sort of more indie level, another thing is like you go see like, someone like Jack Johnson or whatever, he's playing a stadium. So you're just like, oh, okay, well, that's so far from me. But you go see Craigie and it's like, this is, this is not, you know, that's, you know, people go like, I played here once before too. So yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, space to be in is that sort of middle ground where, um, where you know that you can kind of, um, you're, it's relatable in that sense. So it feels, it feels good. It feels really good just to, to be able to let people know how doable it is. And to give the advice that I was given, you know, um, along the way, I wish that I had had more access to people doing what I was doing um, at the time. And I made a lot more mistakes that way. So I really just try to, uh, you know, sort of help people out and not, you know, make the same mistakes. I did. And by mistakes, I just mean like just slower moving and, you know, things about booking and stuff like that. What, what are it's some other changed. what are some other mistakes you made? Well, this this one thing I've been like the little speech I've been giving lately um, to like these young kids is this, I call it, I call it sell out the closet is what I call it. And basically it's this idea of, um, knowing your, like your fan base in that area. One thing, a mistake that a lot of musicians make is like, you know, you'll get successful in a certain area. You start playing, um, let's use San Francisco for an example. <clears throat> you're starting, you're starting to do, um, maybe, uh, great. Let's say you're doing great American. You're doing really well. You can't expect to then go play the great Americans in every town. You just sure. can't, you know, yeah. you've paid your dues in that city and that's why you're playing great American. You're going to go, maybe you'll go even somewhere as close as, you know, Los Angeles and they don't, no one gives a shit. You know? Yeah. And so, and so I think that's, so what I, so the whole sell out the closet idea is like, know your, your group, your fan base. So the thing that everyone knows about the business, even if they don't know it, is that um, it's not about how many people are at the show, but it's about how many people aren't at the show. And what I mean by that is that if you play a uh, hundred person room, hundred person capacity, and there's 50 people there, it's going to feel weird mm -hmm. and it's going to feel unsuccessful. And the crowd's going to feel that too. If you play a 50 person room and 50 people are there, same exact 50 people, it's going to feel, it's gonna feel, feel like feel an amazing show. Awesome. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. You, it's, and, that, and, that, and that's true for any number anywhere. And so the joke I make is like, if you have three fans in a town, <clears throat> You book the closet, yeah. you know, and you sell out the closet, and there, and in that that show will be amazing in the closet with those three people, and they'll be like, "Man, Craig, you was standing room only; it was packed." Yeah, you know, like, yeah. And and so that's something <laughs> that I wish I would have known early on, because it's also just, it was just, it's just hard to sometimes it's hard to find those spots. But in the beginning, yeah, you you can't. Of course, you're going to only have three fans. That's completely normal, and. <clears throat> In the beginning, I just was seeking out those smaller rooms. The moment I started doing that, then it starts building all this buzz. It's like 
Greggy sold it out. I do. I mean, I'm not going to repeat my bits, but like, you know, I do the whole bit of like nobody asks what the capacity was. Yeah, right. You, say, you know the bit. I mean, yeah. so anyway, um, and, and so that's something that I think is a mistake people make where they want to they want to do something big. Like I'm going to Santa Cruz. I got to play the Catalyst. You know, that's that's just what I got to play. It's like no, you don't. You yeah. never have to play the Catalyst if you yeah. don't want to. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The fans don't care about the Catalyst. They care about you, and they care about feeling like yeah. it was really you're awesome gonna play show. the crate place and it's gonna be awesome sure yeah exactly yeah. what more awesome and yeah. so i think that's something that and i think people also just get really yeah like hooked on these sort of their goals are weird too when i talk to like a young uh, musician's goals they do look at it in those kind of terms like my goal is to play the catalyst which is a stupid goal in my opinion you know your goal should be to like you know like make write some kick-ass songs and have uh you know really successful shows and make you know make it to a point where you can like continue um, doing this without having to, to work a day job. Yeah. Um, and that if you do that, like it won't matter. Um, you because the thing is early on, like I would have these goals and then I would play the catalyst. You know, like um, and it could be it might be a good show, it might be a bad show. It doesn't matter in the end. It's like all right, I gotta have some new goals. Mm-hmm. You know? The goal of like the venue is a very like young person or sort of like you know beginning musician's goal. Sure. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, touring. Yeah, let's do it. So let, let's try to paint a picture for for the listeners that might not be familiar with you. So how how much how how much are you out on the road these days? A lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> most mostly, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Um, so how, you know you I mean is it is it is it fair to say you you I mean I know you you're kind of based in Portland now. Um, yeah, but for years it seems like, and and maybe still today, like you you kind of live on the road too. It maybe as much, if not more, you know, as, as any one place. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, to give to give an example, uh, I do live in Portland. I have a room there. Um, in, in April, I was there two days. May, I won't be there. I won't touch it at all. Um, and then June, uh, probably altogether. Um, you know, maybe about a week. Uh, summer, summer and winter, I'm there a little bit more. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, um, a lot. Yeah. A yeah. Lot. And, and how, how does that, I mean, obviously it's, it's working for you as far as, uh, I mean, I mean, I don't think you would do it if you couldn't at least tolerate it. Right. Correct. Um, Correct. but, uh, I mean, do you, do you enjoy that, that aspect of, of essentially not really having a home base, uh, more or less and being on, being on the road. Is that, because I know, I know some musicians that would, they would get, you know, driven crazy. Um, and, uh, I, I guess I just, I'm just interested in like how that works as far as like laying down roots or having, having friends, having, I don't know if you intend to have a family at any point or if that's something you're into, but you know, just, I mean, it's just a, it's just a unique thing to, to live on the road. Not everyone could do it. And I'm wondering if you want to share some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, um, that's another, not not to get into like the advice section again, but another another mistake I think a young musician makes is setting up this idea of how much they should be on the road. It really is a personal sort of like threshold that one has to discover because it doesn't matter. You know, your fans are your fans and they'll see you when they see you. And, you know, you can tour. You basically should tour as much as you want to tour. Well, um, but it does matter to an extent as far as how you're going to build a fan base in other yeah. cities. For sure, for sure, but it's like, you know, if you want like world domination or if you want like, you know, neighborhood domination, yeah. um you do have to get out there 
Um, but again, that's kind of, that's kind of your call too. Um, if you don't, I think there's certain people who are like, I don't want to tour that much, but am I going to fail because I don't? It's like, no, you'll be, you'll be fine. Just do as much as you want. I definitely do. Uh, it comes to, for me, I discovered it when I was living in Santa Cruz and I wasn't touring at all. I really wanted to play a lot, you know, cause I liked to play mm-hmm. and I just enjoyed it. And I would, so I booked all these gigs in Santa Cruz. I, would, I was doing like three a week and, you know, eventually, like pretty quickly, actually, your fan base is like, we just saw you, bro. Like we're not, yeah. you know, you're not the Grateful Dead yet or ever. Yeah. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to every show. And so I was like, man, if I want to play a few nights a week, I got to start moving around. And so then I started doing like a show in Santa Cruz, then a show in San Francisco, then a show in Santa Rosa or whatever. And then I was realizing like, oh, cool. Okay. It's fresh now. These people didn't just see me. And then I just sort of was like, okay, now I got to, I got to, you know, expand farther and farther and farther. And, um, I really liked that. I liked the travel. Um, it also helped being solo, not having a band. Um, the more people in the band, in the band, the more, there's like the more schedules you have to coordinate. And then again, it's everyone has a different threshold of how much they want to tour. Not to mention the expenses. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I had that benefit from the get go. And so it was pretty easy. So even in the early days, I, you know, I never lost money on a tour because it was just me and I didn't, you know, I was sleeping in the car and, you know, they would feed me at the gigs and I'd buy some snacks. So it was pretty easy, even though, you know, a lot of those early tours, I wasn't hardly getting paid at all, yeah. except for maybe a tip jar or maybe a bar gig that was like a hundred bucks. But that's really, I didn't need much, you know, yeah. just gas and the occasional food. And, uh, but are, and, and then, okay, so early on, were you doing all your booking and all your Definitely. promotion and marketing and everything? Definitely. Up, up until only about the past like two and a half years have I really started working with with the team. I was pretty reluctant for a long time because it took me so long to kind of get where I was. And right, you know, the funny thing about the business is that it's not, not entirely not this way, but in general, it's not the way it was. You know, you hear the story of like, of Jackson Brown would be a perfect example of like, he just records a demo tape and sends it to the, um, I forget what record label he was on in the beginning. Um, maybe it was Island records. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, he just sends it in and then they're like, this guy's great. And then boom, Jackson Brown, the first album comes out and he's Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays, you know, these people, whether let's, let's not even talk about labels, but just like management booking, they don't take, they hardly take any risks. So by the time, one of the jokes you make is like, by the time you, somebody comes up to you to, to like, you know, by the time you're, you're valuable, you don't really, you know, you're like, you don't need him as much because right. you're like, shit, I let this shit down. Yeah. And so. And so that's kind of how, you know, by the time people start courting you because you're looking good, you're making money, it's like, well, I kind of don't need you, um, which is not true. It's help is help. And, you know, if you if you just if you just are smart and you and you choose the right people, they will help you. Sure. But I mean, you don't. But go ahead. Well, they're just the, I mean, what they'll I hopefully, you know, what the, the idea is, is that they'll take you to levels you couldn't get just on your own. Exactly. The mistake people make is like, oh, cool. An agent wants me. I want an agent. Let's sign up. Um, you know, this agent can actually make you end up doing more work. You know, it's the example I give is like, you know, let's say you're really good at cleaning your own carpet, <clears throat> but then you're like, I don't want to clean my own carpet anymore. And so you get some, you hire somebody who doesn't know how to clean carpets very well. So then you spend all this to teach them how to clean carpets. Yeah. And then, then you go back and you're like, ah, I didn't even clean it. You have to clean it twice. So, right. um, sometimes you end up getting, these people to help you out who aren't the right people. So it's really good to just be, um, to sort of be more cautious with that. 
and uh, wait, be patient. And so, which is what I did, and I was lucky uh, to get the people I have now. Um, but yeah, so for you know, for many, many, many years, I was doing it all myself. And and how much uh, how much of your time would you say was divided? You know, when it when it came to like working on your songwriting uh, and and music and, and writing, as opposed to just pure business side of things and, and travel logistics and, and booking and, and, and updating your website. I mean, what, what, what was more of the, of the time suck? Yeah, it's, that's hard to say. I, I'm not really good at, at like quantifying people ask me that a lot. Like, you know, how much time do you spend on songwriting? I've never been one to like sit down and say, okay, now, now we're doing the, the two hours of songwriting. Uh, for me, it is sort of like, cool, a song's coming. Let's, let's get on, on this. And that always took priority. Um, well, but how and, do you sit down? So do you, do you not make time for writing? I mean, uh, no, I mean, not not in that sense. I'm not that disciplined, and I'm not that like uh, that. Never works for me. So I make when, time. If I, so how, so how does that work? That how would you you know how how would a song just come? You're just hanging out with your guitar somewhere, but not and strumming on chords, and then all of a sudden this song comes. I'm just trying. <laughs> figure out yeah no that's that's a great question um for me at this point it's all it's all words first okay um so the words will come to me and again it's words that are like things that i feel that are happening to me or that are like they have to be about something i'm not really good at like singing about like the trees and stuff you know that's not Mm -hmm. my my talent and so a lot of times it's just uh i'm i'm doing whatever i'm doing and then a line comes if i if i'm around the guitar i'll sit with that line if I'm not, I plug it into my, uh, I have an app, you know, that is a sort of a notebook app that catalogs my, um, my songs. So I'll say like, oh, okay, that'll, that'll be on a page. And then I'll just start thinking about that and I'll dwell on that. And, and so let's say, for example, like I'm like writing a song about Trump or whatever. So I'll get an idea for that. So then I have a, a little section, the, tr- the Trump song, and then, uh, get a few more lines. I'll be driving. I'll be walking around a few more lines. Um, get to the guitar, flesh it out, and just let each line kind of come. And then maybe at some point I'll be like, oh, what would be good with this? But wh- when you're, when I'm right, with songs like that, I find it's, it's a little bit easier because the story is, you're telling a story. And so, yeah. Um, once you know what the story is about, it kind of comes together. I'm not like, I don't use a lot of big words. I don't use a lot of, um, crazy metaphors. And so that happens. But sometimes it's just sort of, I'm backstage and I'm like, and I have a melody. I'm like, oh, I like this melody. And I have five minutes or ten minutes before I go on stage. I'll start strumming that melody, and uh, and then I'll say, "Oh yeah, this lyric fits in well here." Um, so yeah, my my style is pretty erratic, and I wouldn't I wouldn't ever teach it or anything because it's pretty it's not as disciplined as some of my friends who are really good about saying like, "We're going to the cabin, we're going to write seven songs," and they do it and they're great. I've never been one to do that. Did you actually <laughs> write a song about Trump? Yeah. Now that that story is. Um, uh, is is different in the sense that uh, I was using that as an example, but the story, the song right about Trump, I had to write very fast because um, it was it was like it was you know there are times as a folk singer like when like your job becomes like necessary in a way. What I mean by that is that like something has happened that if you do not acknowledge it, um, you know the show will just not go on. I remember my fa- my father uh, is like a is a sort of a dorky dad you know he's he has us he has like he was probably the funny guy in the office you know and 
I remember him telling me he would get hired, you know, like if somebody died, he would be like, they would want him to give a eulogy or at least give a talk because he was good at, at you know, uh, being funny in, in, a, in a dorky dad way. And so what he would always tell me is like, John, if you, you have to give the talk at the funeral and you're like, you want to make people laugh, you have to get them to laugh at the corpse that's sitting there first. Because if you if if not, there's no way they're going to laugh at like your peanuts joke or your pretzels mm. joke. Mm. Because they're going to be like, they're going to worry about disrespecting that corpse. If you can get them to laugh at the corpse, obviously in a respectful way, or maybe not, then you're you're good. And so, you know, elect, the election was on a Tuesday. And then I had my first show of this big California tour two days later. And I was backstage and the woman was just like, man, we can't wait for like, you know, all the songs you have about this. And I was like, it's been two days, man. Yeah, but, but she was right. Like there was, you know, the, the California audiences were legit bummed out. Mm -hmm. It was like a funeral. And yeah. if I wasn't, I couldn't go out there and not acknowledge it. And be like, who wants um, to hear about Chuck Norris? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Everyone's going to be like, fuck you. Yeah. And so I knew I had to acknowledge it. And I knew that if I wanted people, I could get out there and do what a lot of musicians would do. It'd be like, Fuck Trump, fuck this system, um, which is not my style, even though that's true, and that's how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to like, you know, bring some positivity, and so I did write um, a song that after that evening, before I went on. That over the course of that tour, I was able to kind of fine tune, and uh, you can look it up on YouTube. But um, it was, uh, it was, you know, mixed, mixed message, you know, the different messages about um, the sort of the silver lining of this, and. Uh, and I and it's I st I'm still singing it now. It's still it's still working, which what, has been nice. What is uh can can you go into some of those sentiments? What's the silver lining? Yeah, the main thing that I that I that I the sort of the second verse main humorous aspect is that um I say I say that it's historically proven that when the president is a Republican, we have better music because mm -hmm. artists are better when they're bummed. And then I give a bunch of examples of like all the bad music that comes out when the, when the Democrats in office and. And I uh, make, you know, make like Nickelback and Limp Bizkit and Lincoln Park all came out, you know, during the uh, Clinton administration. Yeah. Uh, Justin Bieber, you know, is an Obama. So um, it's that part's funny. And then verse one and three are a little more serious about how, um, uh, you know, the chorus is sort of there are, are so many of us and only one of him. So don't let it get you down. You know, remembering that aspect of America and democracy that um, even though you feel like it's not a democracy in the end, like the majority uh, does win and even sometimes the minority wins once they get the majority like to realize how stupid this is and so have um, your so thoughts anyway. uh have your thoughts evolved on on that <laughs> what's your general mood since since the election and uh, i should note I'm, we're recording this in may of 2017 yeah well you know i mean i'm i've been around a little bit and I have the I have the the blessing of knowing people older than me, so it, you know when it happened, it was very upsetting, obviously. But it it wasn't as like soul crushing as I think to some people, just because I also just know how the world is and how American emotion is, and you know life is hard, America is hard, like living is hard, and so we do these we like to sh swing on this pendulum because you know Bush is president and your your life sucks, so you're like okay I'll vote for the opposite of Bush mm -hmm. like. That'll that'll help things get better. Obama's president. Maybe your life still sucks. So you're like, all right, now let me try the opposite of Obama. You know, it's just how I get I get that sort of thing, and so I get that a lot of people um, voted that way just because, in general, their particular 
uh, life wasn't going so well, which is just a common thing and stuff. And so I knew that it, I, it wouldn't be as bad as people thought it would be. I knew that we weren't going to die that, you know, on in January inauguration day. Mm-hmm. But I also knew that, you know, not to be naive about um, how <clears throat> how little this man, you know, cares about. Uh, you know, Americans in general. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching with a cautious eye as an artist. Um, it just my goal to like, let people, you know, stay awake, stay active and not, you know, let, let it get them down or, or like into that sort of hiding place of, of no hope. But yeah, me, me personally, it's, it's tough. I mean, I have a lot of, I have like the privilege of, of, I, you know, sort of live this, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a white male, obviously. So like that, has a lot of privilege that come with it. I'm an artist, so I um I can sort of dodge a lot of the other sort of weird aspects of American culture. Um, you know that I'm you know make, I'm sort of making my own rules and uh you know like minimum wage doesn't affect me or hiring like job loss doesn't affect me in the same way. So personally, it's it's weird um watching it go down. Always, always. I, you know, my, my main concern is just like for like my people, like, you know, for the people and I just want, yeah, I, you know, everyone to be happy. Is <laughs> that sort of that's how it goes. Yeah. Are you, are you hopeful for the future? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if, if, if it goes as it goes, you know, Trump will be a, a, a bad president, probably not as bad as, you know, most liberals think, but pretty bad in the same way that Bush was, was bad, but like, you know, not the worst. Um, and I, I the, and the hope that I would have is that there are people who will just vote Republican no matter what. That's just what they do, and that's and that is its own thing. But the people that voted for Trump because they were hoping for that change uh, will be like, ugh, that didn't work, and so then they'll go for the next thing. But I'm not one to talk. I'm not really a good politics person to talk about. We could get deeper into this yeah, about who but... the Democrats should pick, but in the end, uh, I am so ignorant about that. And I and I. I definitely maintain that as well. So I'm not one to like get into arguments because I know my ignorance on the subject. And I also just know it's so complicated. Yeah. You know, millions and millions of people trying to make everyone's life work is just so fucking complicated. You know? uh-huh. But just yeah. like, yeah, yeah, just like remind everyone, be nice to each other. Don't let this like make you mean to each other. As a musician, people want to know, you know, and it's, it is, it is always, or at least ever since like the, early 60s it's always been looked to like okay what you know which is why i wrote the song because i knew people coming to the show being like what are you going to say about this and um so it's important to ha- it would be it would be sad to not have an opinion you know what i mean so yeah so are so you're you're comfortable with mixing uh songwriting and politics yeah now the way i do it uh, you know my technique is um is not like never to tell people how to think first of all second to you know my job i feel one of the things that that uh keeps me like getting really into politics is that i've just sort of i i'm aware of the of the game of it and and it just seems to divide people you know Uh and that's like the which is the opposite of my job yeah and and so you know what i want to do is i want to acknowledge it i want to i want people to laugh at it which is mo- almost every pol- political song of mine will ha- have some sort of humor in it mm-hmm. um and you know just keep in mind that like we are all in this together and so it's silly for us <clears throat> to be fighting with each other um because we all have to like live with this with this with this particular 
um, person or, or, or group of people. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. And so that's, so yeah, is I, I would, I wouldn't usually, uh, get up there and, and rant or tell someone to vote a certain way. You know, my goal would just be like to, um, to just turn people onto some ideas. And then I think, you know, I'm open to the fact that if someone's a Trump supporter, I don't, I, I don't write them off yeah. because I have people in my life that did vote for him. And, um, and, uh, you know, I don't agree with their reasons, but I understand their reasons. And I think that's a big, uh, a big different, a big deal right now is just try to understand these people. Cause it's one thing to be like, you're a Nazi, you're an idiot, you're yeah, whatever. You're racist. And just being yeah. like, yeah, like, okay, I, okay, I, I see why you would do that. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, and I just don't have as much anger in me. You know, I've been, again, humbled so much in this life that it's hard for me to take any kind of high ground on someone, um, that simply, but yeah, so, but as far as like, yeah, my performance goes, um, I, I, I like to acknowledge it. I don't want to be an act that just sings about pictures on the phone and, and Chuck Norris, you know, I want people to walk away, uh, feeling heard and feeling, you know, that connection. And, and right now a lot of people are very affected by that. And I think part of my show is to just be like, don't do not let that, you know, be in charge of your own emotions and, and you know, rule your, your life, um, as best you can. And don't let like some, something, some idiot says, uh, you know, bring you down that much. What can you do about it? You know, I think is a big deal. And, and I, but I, I know I'm also just aware of the struggle. So yeah, it's tough. It's, it's, it's a tough topic. Yeah. John, it's, it's, I think, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground here and, uh, I hope, um, I hope the rest of the tour goes well. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, I hope to see you this summer sometime at, uh, in California or, or elsewhere. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's be in touch. Awesome. All right. Okay. I'll talk okay. to you soon. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you have it. John Craigie. What a great guy, right? You loved him, right? Yeah, I thought you would. A um, few things. I'll put a link to that Trump video of the, his Trump song uh, that we talked about on YouTube. I've since watched it, and it's a it's a great song. Good, good job with that, John. And uh, Collection... I believe the apocalypse is over. It was his fourth to last album, not his third. He's a pro- pretty prolific guy. I may have that incorrect too, but that's a good one. Um, his latest release, No Rain, No Rose, is great for some of his, uh, where you could see where his songwriting skills are at these days. And then if you are interested in more of the humorous storytelling side, his 2016 live album, Capricorn in Retrograde, Just Kidding, live in Portland, is also available wherever albums are sold or streamed, unfortunately. Uh, and fortunately, at the same time, that's another it's another issue. But that one's really great. And then if you're a child of the 90s and feeling some nostalgia for some alternative rock pop of the day, uh, I really love John's 2010 release, Leave the Fire Behind, where he plays all your favorite 90s cover songs in a contemporary folk fashion. Great stuff, John. Thanks for that. Anyway, thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. I'll see you on Monday. Uh, Please subscribe, leave a review, drop me a line, and I hope everyone has a great day.